Blog Talk Radio. but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, National Spokesperson for the USDA, Biosecurity for Birds Program, and Editor-in-Chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. also want to send a uh, reminder that uh, there at chickenwhisperer.com, we also have a really popular page called Fact Our Chicken Poop. And uh, the way that works is uh, we kind of gather uh, information from other uh, chicken blogs, chicken forums, and, and things out there of that nature. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to pick out a statement that someone has posted as if it were scientifically proven fact about keeping poultry. And then we take that statement, we send it to one of our experts, contributors, and uh, they have a reply to that so-called statement of fact. So uh, it's really great. People are really enjoying it. They're learning a lot from it. And uh, it's over there at chickenwhisperer.com as well. we got a great show lined up for you today with brand new show this year, brand new guest for this year. Second Tuesday of each month, we're going to welcome Dr. Maurice Patiski. And uh, today we're talking about a brand new pastured poultry project on the campus of UC Davis. We'll also be discussing a new released study that talks about backyard poultry having more external parasites than caged commercial poultry. So we got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, during the break, make sure you get that Chicken Whisperer spiral notebook out and that pen and paper so you can take notes during today's show. It's going to be a good one, folks. Stay with us. At Kambach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at KalmbachFeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, Feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Are you in the market for a new chicken coop? 
want one that will outlast all the others? Then look no further than Urban Coop Company. All of their coops are made from appearance-grade western red cedar right here in the USA. Urban Coop Company coops are designed to be both beautiful and functional. I invite you to visit their website to learn about the many features of their coops and check out their integrated coop accessories that will make your life easier. They're passionate about building great coops because they know you're passionate about your backyard chickens. Visit their website at urbancoopcompany.com. That's urbancoopcompany.com. Just a cap full a day directly into their water is all it takes for a stronger immune system. Introducing ePoultry, an all-natural, whey-based soluble that will help improve your flock's overall health. Made by farmers for farmers right here in the USA. ePoultry is a safe, all-natural way to give your birds the strong immune system they deserve. Learn more and purchase at www.eanimalproducts.com. That's www.eanimalproducts.com. Give the chicken fountain a try. It's clean water by design. It's a new way to water your flock. Chickens to turkeys to ducks to peacocks. Nothing to lose, so start today. Not a major water, the easy way. Learn more now, you can't go wrong. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Strombergs family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Strombergs should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at strombergschickens.com. That's strombergschickens.com. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. I want to thank everybody for tuning in, all of our live listeners, our listeners that listen to the archive show, all of our homeschoolers that incorporate the show into their homeschool curriculum. We thank you, the over-the-road truck drivers that have uh, small flocks at home. I know you all listen to the podcast via archive, sometimes 2, 3, 4 in the morning when you're uh, uh, getting that freight to the next destination. Be safe out there in this uh, frigid and icy weather. Keep the rubber on the 
on the road and all of the feed stores across the country that stream this radio show live to your customers. We thank you very much. Hope you're getting geared up for a really busy spring season for backyard poultry. I know we are uh, looking forward to it here as far as a, a really a mini tour through Florida. I've got that tour uh, and the dates and the times where I'll be doing book signings and uh, poultry workshops, uh, five events across uh, mid-state, I guess, of Florida. And then uh, we'll be heading north for our spring tour, which is going to be starting in March. Wisconsin, Michigan, northern Illinois, northern Indiana. Looking forward to that. Um, May have to buy some uh, snowshoes <laughs> getting up that way uh, so early. want to do a quick reminder, everybody, that you have two uh, choices right now, two opportunities uh, to win a really cool new chicken coop for your backyard. We've got a uh, Facebook chicken coop contest going on right now over on our Facebook page sponsored by Curtis Coops and Yardbarns.com. A really nice coop there and very easy to enter that contest. You can get all the rules and, and enter over at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash The Chicken Whisperer. And then we have uh, another, a second awesome chicken coop contest uh, in our magazine. In the winter issue of Chicken Whisperer magazine, we've got a coop being provided by snaplockchickencoops.com, and uh, whichever one you like, or you can go ahead and enter both contests. There's no rules against that, that is for sure. And you can get information and enter over at chickenwhisperermagazine.com. So two opportunities this month to win a brand new chicken coop for your uh, backyards. Take advantage of that. While you're over there at chickenwhisperermagazine.com, go ahead and subscribe to the free uh, digital subscription. Uh, you'll get that publication emailed to you four times a year, great science-based, fact-based, study-based information with a great team of contributors, and that's free. We're so passionate about getting the right information out there into the hands of backyard chicken keepers. Uh, that's our goal. That's what it's all about, and I think we've done that with this publication. If you like a real magazine delivered to your mailbox that you can sit down and flip the pages, we can accommodate you as well. For $9.95, you can subscribe to the print edition of Chicken Whisper Magazine. I want to send a shout out to everybody in the live chat room. We've relaunched that for 2016. It's slow to get started, but we've had uh, a lot of folks in there the last few broadcasts we've had for 2016. So I'm sure that'll gain in popularity the beginning of this year uh, to where it'll be a really fun time. A lot of friends. We've done that in the past. Uh, I stopped it for about two or three years, but we're relaunching it for 2016. So many people miss that and uh, so many great chicken relationships uh, with chicken keepers were made in the chat room. So uh, we've relaunched that. Hope you're having a good time over there and uh, talking about uh, your love for poultry. Really excited. Uh, this is a first show for this year. Uh, a brand new guest. I'm very honored to have him signed on to come on the second Tuesday of every month to talk poultry, to educate us with his uh, vast knowledge about um, chickens and backyard chickens. Really looking forward to it. Today is no exception. We've got uh, Dr. Maurice Patiski uh, with UC Davis, and we're talking about a brand new poultry, uh, pastured poultry project they've started on the campus of UC Davis to, to really um, get more information, to study, to see what works, to see what doesn't work work with pastured poultry so they can share that. It's so, it's so popular right now. People are wanting to do that um, either for small business, for, for, for themselves, um, as a hobby, to homestead, and uh, there's a lot of information that needs to be gained to, to help folks do that, um, I guess, uh, a little bit easier. And by that, I mean uh, the right way with uh, lots of information that can help them um, 
save money, save time uh, by not reinventing the wheel. So that's going to be a great project we're going to be talking about. And then after that's done, we'll go to commercial break. We'll come back and we'll talk about um, a study that was released this past week that shows uh, backyard poultry have more external parasites than uh, their caged commercial counterparts. And um, when I posted that, there's got to be more to it. Uh, than just the surface because we understand that most backyard chickens have access to they're outside they're in a coop they have access to the outdoors which puts them in contact with more hosts of these like mites uh, mice and rodents and other wild birds and animals and grasses so it, one might think that it's it's kind of simple did we really have to do a study to, to prove that i think that's probably pretty obvious because of the environment but there's got to be more than just that because underneath there underlying so we're going to talk about that study um and and what it really means and uh is it is it really that uh, are we is it is it that obvious or you know, if if we knew that why they do that so it's, it's, we're going to be talking about that as well too and uh a little bit after our first uh, topic so let me get over here to the phone lines uh let's give uh dr patiski a big uh, chicken whisper welcome <laughs> Dr. Patiski, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Andy. It's good to be here. Yeah, glad for you to come on and and share about this new project. I thought uh, first show of the year, uh, first uh, regular segment for you, and I know you're really proud, and a lot of folks there at the campus are proud of this new project. Uh, I remember I was sent lots of emails about it. We shared about it. Um, There was a fundraising campaign um, uh, to to help uh, supplement the cost of this. Uh, Lots of departments at the college apparently were brought in. Uh, from engineering the chicken tractor and and getting the land and the whole nine yards, so I'm I'm really excited to be talking about this. And uh, you can share about the uh, project itself, what what the goals are with the project, the kind of timelines when we'll start seeing some things. I know a lot of people are interested in what breeds y'all have chosen for for this and what your goals are with the uh, program. So uh, I'll turn it over to you. And uh, if you'll first tell us a little bit about yourself there and your position at UC Davis, and then we'll get right into talking about this great new project. Great. Well, thanks again for having me, Andy. So um, just really briefly, I'm a veterinarian at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, and my uh, faculty appointment is in poultry health and food safety epidemiology. So I have a background in a lot of data analysis, and I do a lot of mapping of avian diseases. And uh, I'm in cooperative extension, so part of my job in cooperative extension is to reach out to the poultry industry in California, um, whether that be the large commercial farms or whether that be um, backyard enthusiasts and kind of run the whole spectrum of those type of um, poultry producers. And I work with them on all the challenges they have with respect to food safety and data analysis and husbandry. Uh, environmental management, um, all those type of things. So kind of transitioning to the the pastured poultry farm um, in California, we have a pretty large um, distribution of different commercial poultry uh, operations. So we have the the traditional kind of large foster farm type facilities Mm -hmm. and the equivalent Mm -hmm. of that on the layer facilities, and they serve a very important niche for food production. Um, But we are starting to get a much more diverse 
uh, free-range commercial systems that are um, kind of popping up all over the state, um, including pastured poultry and other free-range systems. And there's uh, relatively large companies that are multinationals that are um, moving in um, to California and across anywhere where you can grow pasture or keep birds outside year-round. Uh, you're seeing these companies uh, working with um, uh, farmers on setting up these facilities and then selling them to um, to consumers at the the normal stores that you and I go to to buy to buy eggs uh, mm-hmm. traditionally. Um, so mm-hmm. traditionally, extension has not really reached out to some of these non-traditional commercial farms. Um, and one of the things that we were really keen on is over the last year we've done a survey that we're just about to publish on uh, pastured poultry production in California. And mm-hmm. among other things, one of the things we learned is that there's just not that much knowledge of uh, the resources that these farmers have um, as far as you know how can they address disease issues and vaccination questions they might have and how to deal with ectoparasites and food safety and uh, regulations. In California, we have Proposition 2, which requires uh, certain uh, cage requirements. And there's just not Mm -hmm. that much knowledge that gets distributed to those type of producers. So one of the things that we thought would be very useful, especially for pasture poultry production, which has become much more um, popular in California, our survey identified at least 82 commercial pasture poultry producers in California. And that's probably just the tip of the iceberg, and it's probably becoming um, much more popular over the next five to ten years. So we identified these farms, um, and we've gone out to these farms, and uh, we've seen many of the challenges they have with respect to uh, the constructions of egg mobiles and how they're harvesting eggs and how they're treating um, the birds for trying to be preventative against diseases. Uh, we recently had avian influenza in North America, including California. These birds are outdoors a lot, so we want to try to work with these producers and come up with novel um, practical solutions to all the different problems they're having, including um, keeping them in business, making them successful um, poultry uh, commercial entities. Um, so one of the ways that we're trying to do this is this uh, innovation and education facility at, the, at UC Davis. And uh, we have a four-and-a-half-acre um, uh, pastured, uh, irrigated pasture uh, that's just west of the veterinary school, so it's about a mile from my office. And um, as you mentioned, we have collaborators in the School of Engineering, uh, plant sciences, animal sciences, veterinary medicine that have all worked on this facility um, in order to use it as kind of a uh, innovation, research, and outreach hub for pastured poultry producers uh, throughout the United States and potentially throughout the world. So one of the criticisms that people have of this type of production is that it's not very efficient compared to commercial production when you look at things Mm -hmm. like feed conversion ratios and things like that, and I would agree with that. Um, That being said, if you look globally and in uh, parts of the developing world especially, uh, those conventional commercial systems, you can't just... um, uh, take one of those systems and plant it in the middle of the developing world because we just don't have the infrastructure there to support uh, that type of commercial entity or that type of commercial production system. So the reality is is that 
these type of systems that are more substance um, that can um, add nitrogen to the land and that that land can then be used to grow row crops and you can have this uh, redundancy of calories in plants and in animals, that these systems have, a, I think, a very important niche, um, not only in uh, the United States, but in parts of the developing world where food security uh, is a big issue. Mm -hmm. And being able to have an integrated system where you have commercial poultry um, and commercial crops that are produced on the same land, if done correctly, I think can actually be a very important uh, step toward food security in some parts of the developing world. In a smaller scale, um, a couple of years, well, many more years ago, we've been out of the residential neighborhood now for about six years, but um, we we had a garden plot that we, uh, in the winter months, uh, after the fall garden was done producing, we put our, uh, we had a little chicken tractor, we put that into the area fenced in where our garden is all winter for the chickens, and they would eat apparently all the um weed uh, seeds and, uh, of course, fertilize it and turn it over, and we'd add a lot of compost in there for the winter. And then well, our plan, really, it was about, say, about six weeks before we were planning to plant. Uh, we'd move them out, and I'd till it really well, till all that in, and then uh, probably till it again a few days before I planted. And I, I'm kidding you not, we had the tallest tomato plants I've ever seen in my life. We were literally on our tippy toes uh, pick, picking tomatoes, from, and we had to tie them up with metal stakes and rope to the fence. It was it was amazing just trying to uh, kind of rotate those uh, those in there. Now, this information, I guess, will be used for um, everybody. Like you said, a lot of the larger corporations are looking at doing this to provide a, a want by the consumers warning, hey, we want pasture raised. We want to see that label or where that's important to us and we're willing to pay more for that. All the way, I guess, to the uh, maybe the, the hobby uh, farmer that has, uh, we'll say, 50 acres in North Carolina and you know, hey, I want to do some pasture poultry at a small scale, maybe 3,000 birds, and try to sell them for some extra income. So this this information that you all find out in these studies can, can benefit people across the board that are interested in this, both commercial and even the small farmer. Yeah, absolutely. So this is we're, – we're trying to make everything open source. Um, we are making everything open source. So if you look on our website, which I can um, share with you a little later, but if you look on our website, we have a section on innovations, and all those mm -hmm. innovations are completely accessible. So I had a farmer contact me the other day, was interested in our egg mobile and how we constructed it, um, what mm -hmm. the supplies were and what our lessons learned were, and our engineer is going to be showing, sharing those plans um, with, um, with that farmer. Uh, we're, we're really, I think where we really have some real values on the technology side, and you know, a lot of these producers, backyard producers who have a couple thousand or you know, a couple hundred or even 50 or 60 birds, it's really hard mm -hmm. to keep track of how many birds you have. It's really hard to, to know how to manage your pasture effectively. There's, there's a lot of anecdotal information out there. But what we're really keen on doing is applying, you know, hypothesis-driven science in order to really give mm -hmm. people some uh, clarity on how to manage the pasture and how to manage the poultry and how to manage the crops that are, that are, that are all in these kind of integrated systems together. Um, and I think that's where a university can really come in is that we can, you know, we have the, the time that, that, you know, as I always tell the farmers, they work for a living. They don't have the time to do, you know, mm -hmm. uh, controlled studies in order to identify what the best practices are and what the best 
um, how, how to make the quote-unquote best egg mobile. They don't have the time or energy for that or the resources for that. So that's kind of where we come in. And making that information accessible, open source, really closes the loop that, that you know, if we just identify it and we don't share it with producers and we don't share it with the general public, that, that wouldn't be useful or helpful at all. So I, I think, you know, in California, where we get in, in Davis, where our summers are pretty hot, um, our egg mobile can be um, about half of the structure is, um, is, is wire, and we've uh, come up with a pretty clever pulley system of tarps in order to basically make our um, egg mobile um, basically a curtain-sided mobile house. So we'll take mm-hmm. lessons learned from the commercial poultry industry where they have curtain-sided yep. uh, uh, walls, and they can basically you know, move those curtains up or down depending on the, temp- the internal temperature that they want inside the mm-hmm. house. And we can do the same thing on our egg mobile and use the same kind of lessons learned there. We can also get kind of, in my word, kind of nerdy, but in a very practical and applied way. So there are computers now that cost literally $35. So there's a computer system called Raspberry Pi, which is a little bigger than an average person's hand. And uh, you can actually, uh, on Black Friday, you could actually buy Raspberry Pi for $5, but now it's back up to $35. But what you can do with Raspberry Pi is you can have remote sensors all over your farm. So I can have remote sensors that are looking at things like light, that are looking at things like moisture in the pasture, um, they're looking at temperature, and those remote sensors will automatically, uh, through a Bluetooth-enabled uh, device, will automatically send information to that Raspberry Pi device. And I can be in my office a mile away, and I can look at all the data that's coming in on the amount of light that these birds are having access to, because we all know that light is really important for um, optimizing egg production. I can look at the moisture that we have from our moisture sensors in the pasture to know if I have to irrigate it. We're in California, we have a drought, so it's really important to do that. And I can look at humidity and all these other factors just with the touch of a keystroke. Um, So these things I think are really, um, I think there's some pretty slick technologies that are now pretty accessible and pretty easy to to, to, to shoestring, you know, to, or to put together on a farm. And that, that's really what we want to identify. What, what are the good technologies that we can use? We're really trying to apply 21st century practical technologies to these more traditional types of, herb, or these more traditional types of, of poultry farming. Um, what, um, that technology sounds absolutely awesome. I know you talk about uh, the things that we can, you know, a lot of backyard farmers, so, you know, they'll think uh, pastured poultry, and you'll have them a lot of say, oh yeah, modern pastured poultry, and they're in a little run, and they have a little coop, and then and then you look out there, and you're like, where's the grass? <laughs> and you'll see new people. They'll get they'll get they'll get the chickens, put them in a run, and say, oh, I can't wait, pastured poultry. Look at all this wonderful grass for them. And everybody who has experience is like, yeah, just wait about ten days, and you'll see how much grass you have left. So there had to be an idea. If you can tell us, uh, I think four and a half acres. Um, it, or do y'all have plans to, or is it already fenced in for predators? Are y'all going to be monitoring aerial predators and see what loss you have regarding that? And these are layers, not broilers. Um, I'm assuming just from some some of your comments, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. So um, kind of several questions in, in that area regarding um, the, the ratio of hens per acre, so you still have grass available. Um, also the... Um, uh, predator protection. What what are y'all going to be studying about that, and and what y'all have in place for that? Um, you share some of that information with us. Yeah. So uh, great question. So uh, we have layers right now. Uh, we have only 150 birds. This is our first flock that we've had on four and a half acres. Okay. So 
but what we do is um, we have two fences. We have one external fence around the four-and-a-half-acre facility, um, and that's meant to keep out predators, that is, um, especially um, burrowing predators. Um, we can mm-hmm. bury our fence line and um, mm-hmm. prevent um, some predators from getting in. And then on the mm-hmm. inside, we use a mobile electrified uh, fence um, that uh, basically in a 0.25-acre segment, and we have the birds mm-hmm. on that land, and we're capturing data right now, identifying how long the birds are staying on that pasture before we have to mm-hmm. move our um, eggmobile to another spot, to another 0.25-acre um, facility. Now, we have a lot of capacity on that land to have more birds and to do broilers mm-hmm. and turkeys and pheasants and all these type of things. We're keen to do that, like everything, there are rate-limiting steps, and this was our our first flock. Um, But if you look at kind of the literature and you talk to a lot of the producers, um, in general, when we're talking about uh, pasture-raised, we're looking at um, approximately 20 to 25 square feet um, per bird. Uh, on that on that pasture and and where it gets a little challenging is and where there's a lot of different you know as an epidemiologist you would say confounders um is is well what are you know how long do those birds stay on that pasture and how quickly does that grass regrow um and that's dependent on all different types of things mm-hmm. like what environmental factors what kind of pasture you're raising um, you know, all those type of, 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 of variables. And that's the kind of stuff that we're really just starting to look into. We have a plant scientist who's, um, you know, what, what her goal is, is to do a lot of research to basically identify uh, what are the things that a producer could do in order to identify what are the, in order to identify when those birds need to be moved. Because right now everyone just uses their gut and their eyes, and that's probably mm-hmm. 80% of the way there of probably where we need to be. But are there some other factors that we can look into? So we are looking at things um, that sound a lot fancier than they actually are, but there's some, some hyper, hyperspectral imaging techniques that you can actually um, take a relatively mm-hmm. normal camera and basically take pictures of your pasture and then upload those onto a website and then you can get an analysis of the um, the plants that are growing as far as nutrient needs or are they are they getting too much nitrogen, are they getting too much phosphorus, which can be a problem with poultry litter. Um, so we're trying to kind of use that as a way to get the farmers the extra 20% of the information that might be useful um, in order to identify like that, how to how to manage their pasture most effectively. The other thing you talked about was predator control, and at least mm-hmm. in California, when we talk to um, pastured poultry producers and backyard um, enthusiasts, the thing that comes up most often as the number one problem is predator issues. Uh, lots mm-hmm. of raccoons, some foxes, some coyotes, um, just kind of depends on the area and the region. But you will have you know situations where a raccoon, if they get into your house, uh, they'll literally kill every single bird in the house mm-hmm. and they only eat one. I mean, they're pretty... Um, mm-hmm pretty brutal when they when they get in there. So one of the things we're trying to do, you can have hawks, obviously, and we have a, actually a hawk that's very close um, to our, our, our facility. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny because at, at UC Davis, we have a raptor rehabilitation center, and the raptor rehabilitation center <laughs> is very close to our facility. So we actually have a juvenile hawk that has been hanging out our, at our facility, and I was joking with the people at the raptor center that I think it's one of their uh, rehabilitated raptors because it's not afraid of any humans at all. 
So ah. it, it, it's most likely a rehabilitated raptor, and it's just the the price of our our farm being close to the raptor rehabilitation <laughs> center, which is slightly amusing. So I was giving them a hard time that their their raptors yeah. are they're fixing nothing. them and then That's killing our chickens. Um, more but more one, information that you can sorry, share is say, hey, we had this many chickens and this amount of land, and we lost this many to uh, predators, and the predators we deemed that we, you know, that we visualized were a hawk, or maybe we had a, a feral cat or a feral dog that happened to you know, um, get in somehow, but we fixed that problem. So that just more information that you can share with folks on what they always tell folks. Yeah, jokingly, but it gets the point across to say, look, if you want to free-range a hundred chickens. Go ahead and get two hundred, because <laughs> you'll yeah. eventually have a hundred. So a little, yeah. a little extreme there, but but I get my point across. <laughs> no, and and anecdotally, you know, we we've talked to producers that are you know relatively large commercial pastured free range producers, and they'll lose up to a third of their flock in some parts of California from from predator issues. So it, it's a it's definitely a, a significant issue. One of the things that we've done is we've put up we've set up GoPro cameras that are motion activated um, on our facility, so we can understand what the baseline levels of um, wildlife are on our farm each season, mm-hmm. and then we could put mitigations in in order to see if we are um, if we are addressing if we're mitigating or reducing the levels of predators. Mm-hmm. We haven't had very many predators at this point. Um, but it is something that we're basically just trying to get that baseline data. Um, so then when we do see spikes, um, we can put in mitigations and see how effective those mitigations are. The fencing, um, as I kind of alluded to, the two layers of fencing that we have are effective. Um, but fences are mm-hmm. only somewhat effective. And, and if you don't put the fence in right, they're not going to be effective at all. So animals right. are, are, are smart, and they will probe a fence until they find a weakness in it, whether it's a hole mm-hmm. or a gap. Um, so if you have even the gate that, that opens to get you onto the pasture, that should have basically form a nice seal with the gravel or the dirt that you have at the bottom. Or else all that other fencing that you put around that facility is, is at some level useless. So it's really important to realize that uh, your fence has to be continuous and, uh, and, and buried and uh, plumbed to the ground uh, all the way around your facility. Our internal fence um, is electrified and it's portable, and it probably mm-hmm. goes about mm-hmm. four feet high or so. Um, mm-hmm. Animals can jump over that, obviously. And, you know, I have a philosophy, in, especially when it comes to poultry, don't make perfect the enemy of good. So when it comes to basically every disease and, and, and preventative you know, process, um, no one is perfect. There, there's no mm-hmm. commercial producer or backyard producer that's perfect, but we all want to be good. Um, good is sometimes uh, is a lot better than bad, and it gets us 90% <laughs> of where we need to be. So um, when it comes to fencing, the, the same thing. Just because you can't get you know everything perfectly, don't don't use that as an excuse to not put a fence in at all, saying an animal is going to get through. Um, mm-hmm. But the predator control issue is, is is huge. One of the things that we've done, and we've noticed that um, many of the commercial facilities um, don't probably don't do as good a job of at this point uh, on the pastured side is that uh, we have placed um, in our farm, we have very simple PVC um, portable shade structures that are about 10 feet by 3 feet, 10 feet uh, by 3 feet by maybe a foot and a half. And they're just PVC pipes. Um, and you can see them on our website. They cost about $100 to put together. And we put a piece of canvas or a piece of shade cloth on top of it. And we place those uh, strategically around the egg mobile, and we put feed underneath those. And what that does is a couple things. It gives the birds a natural um, place 
to um, kind of be out on the pasture, but also be able to hide if there are raptors or other um, uh, avian uh, animals that, that might try to pick off a, a chicken or two, which is relatively common out here at least. Um, and it also gets the birds further out on the pasture. So what you want to avoid is keeping all the birds uh, right around the eggmobile because that will obviously um, destroy part of the pasture and it won't get that, that the fertigation of the land that you really want where you have that nice distribution of poultry litter throughout the, um, in our case, the quarter acre that we're uh, fertigating uh, at a time. So those portable shade structures, if you don't have those, I've been to several farms where they actually go underneath the eggmobile and a lot of the people, their eggmobiles, they actually have slotted floors. Um, so what happens is the birds hide under the eggmobile or they go under the eggmobile when it's super sunny outside and they need some shade and then you have birds that are inside the eggmobile that are pooping on top of the birds that are underneath the eggmobile. And this is a perfect example of how you go from a welfare issue where the birds are trying to hide from raptors or they're trying to get shade to a food safety issue because now you have um, birds that are getting pooped on and that can obviously cause challenges with respect to um, those, that bird health if they're consuming or they're you have this oral fecal kind of um, exchange of, of, of bacterial organisms, for example. So it's really important to kind of link everything together as holistically as possible and to realize that, you know, if you don't have good biosecurity, and I know that's a, something we always talk about a lot, if you don't have good biosecurity or you don't have good um, husbandry with respect to uh, the welfare and the natural behavior of the birds, that you can run into some significant food safety issues. Um, I guess yours, uh, have, they, have they started laying yet or they have not started laying yet? They'll probably start laying in the next couple weeks or so. So we haven't, okay. we're just about to get to that point. Cool. And um, do you, I guess you'll be gathering data on how many lay out on pasture and how many wait or return to, and you can tell us kind of how that's working. I guess the um, the tractor is within that electrified internal fence, and then they can go back in at any time to lay. I guess you have the nesting boxes, like you're saying, in or below the um, the tractor. Yeah, so we put the nesting boxes um, in a modular um, system. So they're actually on the outside of the eggmobile, mm -hmm. but they're attached to the eggmobile. So we, mm -hmm. um, the advantage to that is uh, we get more square footage on the inside of the eggmobile. So the advantage to that is, let's say we did have avian influenza uh, that was mm -hmm. identified in California tomorrow. Um, we, in a perfect world, would want those birds then to stay inside because we want to protect them mm -hmm. from uh, avian influenza from waterfowl. If you don't have the proper square footage on the inside of your house, um, mm -hmm. then you can't keep those birds in there for very long or else you're going to start running into more behavior issues. So mm -hmm. the, our goal was to basically maximize the square footage on the inside of the eggmobile so we could, in a, in, a, in a rainy day scenario, we can use that eggmobile as basically just a mobile barn, keep the birds in there until... Um, we were able to uh, make sure that things were as safe as possible on the outside as far as uh, waterfowl carrying a, a significant disease like avian influenza. So that's one advantage to that. The other advantage is that it's much easier ergonomically for someone just to be on the outside of the eggmobile and collect the eggs um, mm -hmm. on the outside of the eggmobile than having to go inside and, and dealing with, you know, potentially issues with ammonia or air quality, uh, particulate matter, and things like that. So there, there are advantages uh, ergonomically and also from an uh, animal health and husbandry perspective to kind of that system. Um, 
And then the other thing is we used our Eggmobile. We didn't have we don't have any electricity out at our facility, so we actually used our Eggmobile as a brooder originally. Um, so uh, what we had to do was basically um, use two generators um, and uh, keep the birds inside the Eggmobile with those that pulley system of tarps in order to keep all the warm air inside that Eggmobile. And uh, you know, we're in Northern California, it's still California, so it's a, a pretty moderate climate, but we were able to get temperatures up to 100F um, inside that Eggmobile in, in the fall um, once those chicks hatched. So um, it is one way of using the same um, um, using the same structure as a brooder and also eventually as your egg mobile, which I uh, haven't really seen too much. So it's, it, yeah, it sounds like it's a, just a self uh, a self-contained uh, chicken condo, if you will. Have you found so far? It sounds like there may be. 16, 15 weeks of age or whatnot, have you found that um, they are going truly going back into that in the evening to all roost? Are you finding some that are roosting on top of the eggmobile? Because <laughs> we've all experienced that. They'll they'll try to roost on the fence or up in a tree or, you know, they, some of them like this area. Or or do you find right now the data shows that they're, they're truly all going back into the eggmobile in the evenings to uh, for the night? Yeah, we've been we've been very lucky. It's probably because it's our first flock, and then we don't realize how lucky we are um, on those kind of <laughs> behavioral issues. Um, we do have um, a company in England donated our um, yeah, donated and also gave us at cost some additional chicken guards, which is an automatic mm-hmm. door opening and mm-hmm. closing yeah. device that can either be timed to light or cannot be timed to the actual uh, time of day. Um, so the birds actually, after a couple of days, were really good about um, going out when the door was open and um, going in when the door was closing in the evening. We haven't had any stragglers, per se. Um, we did come up, and if you look on our innovations part of our website, we do have um, these water trough systems. And when we first had the birds, when they first went out on pasture at about eight or nine weeks, the water troughs, they started using those as um, uh, as, as perches. So that's mm-hmm. not ideal because, obviously, if they poop in there, that's <laughs> a, a way for disease to be transmitted. But that only happened for a couple days, and since then we haven't had any issues. So I was chatting with the engineers after it happened, trying to think of ways that we can address that. Um, and obviously there's advantages to using troughs or nipples and, and disadvantages to both, um, but we initially have gone with the troughs, and, and we haven't had that problem since then, but we have talked about ways to uh, create the troughs um, in order to address that for future flocks. Now, the behavior folks that we have in our group, uh, there's Dr. Richard Blatchford, who's um, also in Cooperative Extension and has focused over his career on poultry behavior. Uh, he's very keen to uh, look at water consumption in the uh, troughs versus water consumption in the uh, versus nipple drinkers, and then also address something that you alluded to earlier um, using um, banding techniques so we can understand how these birds are actually moving. Um, what types of, how far do they typically go from their, from the eggmobile? How many times do they come in and outside of the eggmobile every day? 
Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it's not just trivial information there, but if you find out you know, some birds are, are, are more likely to go a little, super far out and maybe are a little more aggressive or pushing the envelope there, maybe those are the birds that are getting picked off by hawks, for example. So is there a behavioral mm-hmm. component to identifying what birds potentially are a little more aggressive versus some birds? We don't want the birds just to stay inside, obviously. We don't want them to go too far outside. We want kind of that happy medium. So is there something that's... Um, that's unique about some species of birds versus other strains of birds, for example, that can help uh, guide us and guide other producers on what would be the ideal breed to have in that type of environment. And that kind of alludes to another issue that we're trying to address. And in commercial poultry, one of the main factors that you try to calculate in order to evaluate the effectiveness of your husbandry practices are feed conversion ratios. Basically, how much protein are you getting for how much feed that you're giving the birds? So you Mm -hmm. want those feed conversion ratios to be as low as possible because then they're converting more protein um, into, they're converting more feed into protein. So we're trying to also identify, you know, what are the husbandry practices? What are the behavior practices? What are the genetic practices? Um, so we can start figuring out what strains of birds uh, eventually, this is right now we just have one flock, but what strains of birds have the lowest feed conversion ratio in that kind of challenging environment? And we just don't have a lot of data on that. In the commercial industry, that data is very well understood, um, and people understand, you know, the value of, you know, different vaccines and different husbandry practices and ectoparasite control, and a lot of it's focused, for the most part, on on the bottom line, which is your feed conversion ratio, because feed is 60 or 70 Mm percent of your cost. Uh, we just don't know that in a pasture system. It's much more anecdotal, and that's that's relatively easy data to capture. Um, and and I, you know, I've been working with producers that are pastured in California and trying to um, encourage them to start capturing that kind of data, so we can start understanding how efficient or inefficient these systems truly are when it comes to to feed conversion. I agree. You often hear times on on blogs and forums, and they'll say, um, "Well, I don't provide any uh, commercial quote feed for my chicken. They just on pasture all day, and I get plenty of eggs." But then you'll hear a lot of the poultry nutritionists uh, heard this just on tour um, from one that the, the birds really do not get uh, nutritionally what they need to be healthy and to really maximum produce um, eggs uh, if they're just on poultry. So you really need to supplement that, you know, free choice, let them get uh, the um, commercial feed that, that they need because they really can't get everything they need just out on pasture. And and if I guess if you just have, you know, 40 backyard chickens that just go out and, and just get what they can and there's only two of you or three of you in your household, yeah, you're probably going to get plenty of eggs for your two or three people household if you have 40 hens just roaming around. But if you're really trying to feed your family, send your kids to college, make a living and pay your bills by this, uh, then and if you really do the numbers, then, then yeah, you'll probably not have amazing layers just if they're just out getting some grass and you don't supplement that. Up. So you hear that a lot. So it will be great to hear some of that information. Are your feeders inside? The water troughs, I understand they were kind of outside, still within that fenced area. I guess they'll get moved within that portable fence area. Are you all keeping the food available to them just inside the chicken mobile or outside or both? 
Uh, just outside. So the water and feed they get um, just when they're just when they're outside. So they're they're roosting at night, and um, at least from what we've looked at in California, most um, if not all of the producers are not giving any feed or water at night. Um, and then first thing in the morning they'll they'll come out and um, and we'll put the feed underneath those portable shade structures and closer to the eggmobile, um, so they have a a choice of, you know, if they want to go a little further out for feed or if they want to stay close to the eggmobile. And then the waters are attached to the eggmobile itself. Um, and the nice part about having the water is, you know, we don't have running water out there either. Mm-hmm. So um, we actually have to, um, we had to be a little clever, and we had to get a rain barrel um, with a spigot, and then that spigot's got a valve attached to it and hoses, and then those hoses are gravity-fed hoses to our, um, our, our water troughs. Um, and then we can drive by um, the eggmobile on the outside of the fence with a 4x4. Four four. And with a pump we have in the back of the 4x4, four four, we have a, mm-hmm. um, a, 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 a another water barrel. We can pump the water from that water barrel into, our, into the rain barrel that's attached to the eggmobile. The nice part about that is that we can turn off the valve. So we were actually vaccinating the birds earlier this week. So you can't put vaccine in water that is drinking water because the drinking water mm-hmm. has chlorine, chlorine in it. That will inactivate the vaccine. Very good. Um, so it. we can turn off the valve, and then we can bring in deionized water where we've diluted our vaccine in there and then put that in the water troughs. And then in the morning, the birds are nice and thirsty, and they go out and drink the vaccine. So that's one mm-hmm. kind of advantage to the system we have. It's relatively easy for any producer or for us to, to give vaccines when we need to. Yeah, I learned that from you actually uh, not too long ago when we were talking. I don't know if it was an article for the magazine. Maybe the Yeah, I think you did an article about uh, water quality or the, the quality right. of water, and that was one thing that I learned from that. And it's just so many people, whether they're giving a, a wormer or any kind of medication, vaccines through the water, uh, to use the non-chlorinated water too, so it doesn't uh, reduce the effects of, of that that medication. That's yeah, I found that fascinating uh, as well. Have you all considered? This may be a big no-no for reasons because you hear you don't hear it a lot, but you often see folks say, you know, I'm, I'm building my coop. Should I do a metal roof or an asphalt roof or what kind of roof or a fiberglass or a poly roof if I want to collect rainwater for my chickens to drink? So that's have y'all was that ever on the table? Did y'all look at that? Is that uh, in the industry a big no-no because of the possible contaminants, of course, bird, avian influenza, any other diseases maybe from other birds that poop on the roof and then the water runs down and you collect it? Is that was that strictly a no-no? Has that been looked at? You know, the short answer is I don't know, but I know from talking in Southern California, especially the last couple of years, there's been interest in in that specific issue. And I was talking to one producer that um, they talked to someone from some environmental consulting firm that said with the roof material that they had, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head what kind of roof material it was, but they were in that kind of San Bernardino area, and it's hot and dry out there. But with the roof material they had, they couldn't collect the water and give it back to the birds. It was There were some... Was it copper, or there was some heavy metal, or something that right. could that could be in the water? But that's a it's an interesting question. You know, we since we've used our egg mobile as a um, as a brooder, also um, our the normal you know it's basically a tin roof, but on the inside of the tin roof we actually put some insulation. 
Um, and that helps um, obviously trap heat inside the eggmobile. But our perches go all the way up to near the roof. And as uh, most of your listeners probably know, uh, birds will peck at anything. And uh, they <laughs> peck at our, at our insulation there. So we've actually had to take that insulation out. Now, the only disadvantage to that is that it does get cold here. We've, we, in a couple of weeks ago, we were in the, the mid to upper 30s. Um, and the birds can survive that. It's about six degrees warmer mm-hmm. inside the coop because of the body heat of the birds. Um, but there's inefficiencies there. So it takes a lot of energy for them then to keep themselves warm. Um, and then that's extra energy that's not going for, you know, egg production or for, for growth and things like that. So there are, you know, birds are tough and they can, they can survive in a lot of different environments, as, as I'm sure all the listeners know. But there, mm-hmm. there is a price to be paid on the other end there as far as productivity. Uh, and mm-hmm. what we call uniformity. So it's really important to, you know, going back to this whole data thing, um, it's really important, you know, to think about things like feed conversion and morbidity and mortality, but also uniformity. Um, how uniform are the size of the birds? Because that, if the birds are all growing up together, they should relatively be the same weight. Um, and if they're not, mm-hmm. that says something about, you know, are you, are you doing some kind of production practice incorrect? Is there not enough access to feed? Is there not enough access to water? Uh, water drives feed, so if they're not getting access to water in a uniform way, if all the birds don't have a, a space at that waterer, then those birds are going to consume less feed also. So there is a link between water and feed, and uniformity is really important and one of the most important ways of really identifying the health and your success uh, with respect to raising an individual flock. I'm going to ask um, um, oh gosh, what was it? It was on the tip of my tongue. It was one more question. And I'm going to have you uh, give us any more information you had on your uh, agenda for this topic. We'll go to a break and then we'll come back and talk about that uh, that study. Um, and I can't remember based on the water, I think this is why I forgot my initial question. Uh, I know what it was. Number one, so I don't forget. Um, being that this is a self-contained unit, uh, chicken hutch, tractor, um, uh, chicken condo, what? And you, I think you said you had what was 125, 140 birds, and uh, what's the, uh, I guess the square footage, or the um, how many square feet per bird do y'all have for inside the coop? If it can be self-contained, like a, just a barn that you, you mentioned travels around, do you have those numbers about? Yeah, so on the inside it should be, and it just depends on what welfare organization you're working with. But uh-huh. the minimum, and, and, and I'm going to – I think I'm right here, but I'm not 100%, so okay. I'm just going to qualify okay. this answer. Okay. Um, the minimum should be um, at least two square feet per bird. Okay. okay. Um, and it in, might be a little inside. smaller. I'm, I'm kind of I'm okay. on the inside. I'm, I'm kind of buffering that a little. It can be a little mm-hmm. smaller. So cage-free, for example – I know they can have, in theory, 1.2 square feet um, of space per bird uh, versus caged Mm -hmm. where it's 8.5 inches by 8.5 inches. Um, Mm -hmm. Then when they're on pasture, depending on who you talk to, now you're talking on the outside, um, not the inside, but on the outside, 21, 22 square feet of space per bird. But going back to your original question about two square feet per bird is a good rule of thumb, and that's probably a little more than what some of the uh, welfare groups uh, recommend um, okay. that are buying commercial producers. Is it safe to say, and in some instances it may not be, because a lot of times when people talk about and they post or they print, uh, you know, we recommend two to four square 
feet per bird inside and 10 to 12 square feet outside or whatever in the run for that backyard setting. But everybody always seems to follow it up with, uh, but the more room, the better. Is that, is that a safe assumption? But maybe maybe not in all cases. You know, if, if you go more than that, it's not going to hurt anything. It may not make anything better, but because everybody always seems to follow up. Yeah, but here, here are the here's what most people recommend, but we all know the more room, the better. <laughs> So I'd, I'd qualify that a little. So, you know, just like yeah. you and I, if we have a 2,000-square-foot house, um, it, it's going to be a little less work to, to maintain than a 4,000-square-foot house. So, right. uh, sure, if, you can, if, you can, if you're willing to heat and cool a 4,000-square-foot house and clean it, that's, that's awesome and all the power to you. But, um, you know, there are advantages in having a smaller space. Um, because then it's much easier to uh, maintain that smaller space. And, you know, the birds don't really need, their, if, if most people kind uh-huh. of see their birds outside, it's not like they're stretching the envelope of the half a quarter <laughs> acre that we're giving these 150 birds. Um, so I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I know we all want to spoil them, and, and we have a tendency, including myself, to anthropomorphize, to kind of put ourselves in their shoes and to say mm-hmm. what we would right. want. But, um Smaller is, it can be just as as good as, as bigger. I would I wouldn't I would say the most important part is right. to have you know a healthy, clean, uh, safe mm-hmm. environment. Gotcha. Is there anything I, I've I've got bad? I get so focused on this and enjoy when we have guests on so much and just absorbing all this information. I'm, sometimes I'm a bad manager of time. So is there anything you really wanted to to share with us about the project before we go to break and we come back? We'll kind of cover it in briefly that that new study. If I can do one shameless commercial for our project, so uh, we uh-huh. do have a crowdfunding site, um, okay. and if you type in UC Davis and pastured poultry, um, you'll come to a website, and then you can you can click on the UC Davis pasture poultry farm, and then from there you can click click on. Um, um, oh, I'm looking at it right now. You can click on um, how how you can help. And uh, we do have a crowdfunding site, and um, it, it is always appreciated when people can contribute to that. Yep, uh, I'll let folks know just for uh, uh, clarity and whatever you want to call it. Uh, I did uh, I did donate uh, early on when I first heard about it. Thought well, some great studies would come out of that, so I can challenge honestly and not feel bad about it. <laughs> I can challenge all of our listeners to also consider doing that for uh, the betterment of studies that can help other folks that are interested in pastured poultry, and and uh, so I can say that uh, without feeling bad because I donated many several weeks ago actually, and uh, because I thought some great things would come out of uh, this uh, this study. I'm going to go to a commercial break real quick. When we come back, we're going to be talking about an interesting study that came out this week. I don't have a lot of time because I know uh, Dr. Patisky's got to get on with uh, uh, chicken education out there at UC Davis, but I want to try to get this in here real briefly about the study because it's interesting. We're talking with Maurice, Dr. Maurice Patisky out at UC Davis. We just kind of concluded um, talking about a pastured poultry project that they've started out there on the campus and then next we're going to be talking about a study that shows backyard poultry have more external parasites than their caged commercial counterparts so interesting study we'll talk about that coming up next so stay with us folks Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. 
I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Our guest today, second Tuesday of every month. Now we've got uh, poultry. Um, sorry, I was interested. Yes, uh, Doctor. Um, 
Maurice Patisky with UC Davis, and uh, very proud to have him on honor that he's uh, signed on to come on. He's also a contributor to Chicken Whisper Magazine, so you can see his uh, um, articles uh, four times a year in, uh, in that publication. Let's bring him back on live now, and uh, I'm not going to go to the study or read the study. You can see it over on our Facebook page, but kind of in a nutshell from the title and, and, and the uh, uh, what we read on the air, I guess, earlier in the week was that a study's been done that basically shows backyard poultry um, end up having more external parasites than, we'll say, the caged commercial counterparts. And, and uh, Doc, when I first saw this, my first response after reading, I didn't receive the study, just what they kind of uh, put out there in the, in the PR report, was that uh, I kind of was like, duh, or kind of like, yeah, sure, because they're outside. They have access to some other carriers like the rodents and wild birds, and other. They have access to uh, opportunities to pick up these um, um, external parasites more than someone that's kind of an inside, indoor, in a cage, and controlled environment. And all that may may or may not be <laughs> true or scientific. That's the first thing I thought. And then I thought, there's got to be. I haven't seen it more to this study than just that. That almost seems to me kind of to be an obvious answer or conclusion. There's got to be a reasoning that I don't see or wasn't printed of why they did this and what they were looking for and some underlying issues that's more detailed than just the simple, sure, because they're outside and the others are not. Yeah, so um, first of all, I, I know Dr. Murillo, Murillo, Murillo Amy, <laughs> and Dr. Mullen very well, so um, that's uh-huh. just a full disclosure there. Um, so a couple things, and, and you're right. It, it is, you know, our using kind of the scientific nerdy speak, I would say, I would, you know, our hypothesis before the study would have been that backyard birds have probably um, more diversity of ectoparasites and also mm-hmm. higher uh, prevalence, higher amounts of mm-hmm. uh, ectoparasites. Um, but the reality is, uh, as a scientist, that might be your hypothesis, and if there's no literature mm-hmm. that proves that, then uh, there mm-hmm. is value to doing that as kind of a baseline initial study um, or pilot study. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. It is, it is something that we would have hypothesized, but, but we don't mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. what the result is until we actually uh, do the study. Now, this study sure. is a short communication, so um, you have like the pretty um, very robust scientific articles, um, and then um, if you have a shorter amount of information, so this was 20 backyard flocks in Southern California tested um, so that's a smaller sample size, then you can do a short communication. Um, so this is kind of falls into that, that category. But it's still peer-reviewed, and I think there's still some in, important information there. You know, one of the things that, that I thought was, was really interesting in there um, was that, sure, they did find ectoparasites, um, mm-hmm. uh, lice, mites, and fleas in uh, 16 mm-hmm. of the 20 uh, backyards. But just as importantly, they didn't find it in four of the backyards. And uh, to me, that's very interesting in the sense that um, that tells me that, uh, A, one option is that there was some environmental uh, issue that was unique to um, mm-hmm. to those four backyards. Maybe they were more coastal. Um, maybe, um, you know, there's something unique to that environment. Or the other thing is, which is probably the more likely answer, is probably those four facilities, uh, backyards, probably have very good husbandry practices. So it tells you that yeah sure backyards you know are are, are most likely uh, going to have um, uh, backyard poultry will have lice mites and, and and potentially fleas but it doesn't tell you that it's 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 20 out of 20 farms it tells you that you know some of these backyards are probably pretty well run and if you have mm-hmm. good I'm going to use our favorite word if you have good biosecurity you have good husbandry yeah. 
you're able to prevent as best as possible uh, rodents and other wildlife from um, exposing your birds to those types of ectoparasites, then it can be done. You can actually reduce, and I wouldn't say, you know, if you spent long enough on those four farms and you tested enough, you'd probably find something eventually. Um, but mm-hmm. the goal with, with ectoparasites is that is not to completely get rid of them um, always, but the goal is really just to keep them at levels low enough to where you're not having any uh, health mm-hmm. or production issues. Um, so that's the other thing that, that, that they didn't really look at in this study yet, um, and this is, again, a really good initial study, is, um, you know, lice are, are, are a nuisance. Um, in high levels, they can, they can affect productivity and animal health. Uh, same thing with mites. Um, mm-hmm. They can be a nuisance, and the high levels can, can cause all kinds of problems. And, and the other thing that's, I think, really important to realize, too, it's, it's not just a nuisance and, and, and kind of lice or mite issue. Uh, some of these mites, um, have been shown to transmit diseases, uh, including foul mm-hmm. cholera in um, in red mites. So um, it is important. Um, it, it's a good initial um, pilot-based study, and, it, and I think again that the thing that it tells me that I'm kind of excited about is that it, you 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 don't have to have this uh, negative um, feeling that it's inevitable that you're going to get ectoparasites. That that you can uh, in, in in at least. Uh, uh, 20% of these of these backyards, you can reduce would, or eliminate uh, ectoparasites. I would love to know too, and it's probably not in there, even though they probably have the information. Just I would love to know out of the 20 uh, or out of the 16 that were found positive, um, how many of the backyard flock owners were uh, surprised, dumbfounded, uh, shocked? They're like, oh, well, you know, I, I thought. Because you go, oh, my birds are healthy, and I don't have those, and then and then they get them tested for something, and oh, they do have carrier salmonella or mycoplasma. I so I'd like to know out of how many uh, of them just had no clue, didn't know to look, or just you know, I I thought they were healthier. I just I would have never dreamed they'd have this. Now I know. Now I can treat this if, if it's at a level to to be treated. I'd like to know about you know, how uh, out of the sixteen, how many. Took that as a very as a surprising uh, result. So uh, that's a really that's good point. Surprising. And the authors, you know, at, at, to their credit, admitted that there was a, a bias to the study. Um, so <laughs> when they, when they ask people to uh, to to sign up for these, you're probably only getting the people signing up that think that their you know facility is perfect. You you wouldn't invite someone <laughs> to your house if you knew that your chickens you you were kind of embarrassed by how you were, you were raising them. So there there is right. probably some kind of selection bias here. Um, but it's it's still an interesting study, and it shows you know the distribution. Lice is, seems to be um, you know anecdotally we've always thought uh, lice seem to be very common on backyard poultry, and this study um, shows that you know we seem to have more lice than than mites and fleas in backyard poultry. That seems to be the most ubiquitous one, um, and um, mites also are are common, but not as common as as lice. And I think you know the real kind of I think maybe most valuable lesson again is that it's preventable and and you know these things are always easier to deal with before you get them on your farm than after so i think again in the spirit of biosecurity and prevention it's really important when you're bringing new birds onto your facility that you look at those birds a good thing about ectoparasites is that they're um you can actually you know do a fairly good mm-hmm. inspection of your bird and basically um prevent those birds from getting onto your property in the first place so if you are going to have birds on your on your farm um, that are being introduced and they're going, to, they're going to be mixed age flocks and there's challenges with that, just make sure that you do a thorough inspection and look around the vent area, uh, mm-hmm. look at the shafts of the feathers under the wings, uh, on the feet, 
um, on the shank. Uh, basically do a thorough inspection of, of that bird if it's practical. If you're getting thousands of birds, that's a very hard thing to do, and then you have to spot check them. But if you're getting a handful of birds from, you know, someone or from a breeder or whoever it be, those, those are good things to check. And then, again, using good biosecurity, rodents and wildlife, um, avian wildlife are going to carry um, other – that's how they're going to get the mites and, and the lice in the first place. So being as preventative as possible in the first place, you know, using rubber boots um, that can be easily disinfected so you're not tramping, uh, you're not moving uh, diseases, uh, including ectoparasites from uh, one farm to another farm. You know, these are all the things that we talk about all the time, but um, and it's, it's not sexy and it's not always fun, but it's really important. Once disease gets on a farm, you can – deal with it, but it's very challenging. And in many cases, not for ectoparasites, but in many cases, the, the best way to deal with them, several diseases, um, including foul cholera, is to depopulate the flock. Mm. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't want to hear that, but, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do in some cases. So we do we do hear that on occasion on, on the show based on this is probably best for the the results of this, this test, whatever they may have or whatever the test shows. We're going to wrap it up, but I have one more question from the chat room i got to ask regarding the pastured poultry. Very simple here. You may know. Um, do you have a preference as to the best type of grass for the chicken run or that you are using up there? Um, he says he had Bermuda and they loved it, but they loved it to death. No more grass. And he was looking for a more, sustain, a more sustainable type of grass. Wanted to know if St. Augustine would be okay or what maybe if you had in front of you what uh, type of grass you all are using on your property there. Yeah, so that's a great question. I am not a plant scientist, but um, the first type of pasture that we're using is an all-purpose forage um, that has a mixture of fescue, ryegrass, um, uh, orchard grass, alfalfa, red clover, and um, if I'm pronouncing it right, brome grass. Um, but it's, okay. it's a mixture, and, and the real challenge is how do you come up with a, a mixture that um, will address issues related to, um, you know, the persistence of it. Is it going to be nice and sturdy and grow all the time, and also um, issues related to nutrition because the birds are consuming it, and in California especially, drought issues. Okay. Yeah, great, because he had lots of drought issues he was talking about and uh, flooding issues as well. So um, this is great information. I really appreciate you coming on. I'm sorry I went over about 12 minutes, um, but I do thank you. It was a great show. We learned a lot about the new program out there at UC Davis and, and about this, this new study that we're excited about and kind of what what it, the goal of it was and what they look to do with that and expand it in the future. So, uh, Dr. Patiski, thanks for joining us today. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much for coming on. Great show. I'm really looking forward to having Dr. Patiski on the second Tuesday of every single month. We'll be covering all kinds of topics um, that are related to uh, small flock poultry and uh, studies. We'll be talking about different studies and what they actually mean and uh, diseases and things like that. And you can see a lot of his work that he's done uh, for uh, our uh, magazine and chickenwhisperermagazine.com. You can click on there and see all the issues. I believe he's had an article in every single issue uh, I believe we've ever published over the last two years. So you can take a 
look at uh, Dr. Patisky's work there, and we're just thrilled that he's going to be coming on the second Tuesday. So just if, if you're new to the show or if you're kind of re-listening for the first time, uh, for 2016, we've made some changes. We're excited about those. We, we now have relaunched the live chicken chat room where you can chat with other chicken enthusiasts uh, while you're listening to the show, which is super. Everybody loves the live chat room. We're going to be uh, kind of easy to remember broadcasting on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. That's Eastern Standard Time. Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2. Uh, that may fluctuate a little bit uh, based on my tour schedule when I am on tour going around the country, uh, but we're going to try to uh, settle in with that schedule. It seems to work for a lot of folks, and uh, so we hope that you can tune in on a regular basis uh, on that Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. So that's going to wrap up another show. We'll be back. Let me look at my uh, calendar here. Uh, looks like Tuesday the 19th, coming up on Tuesday the 19th, and I'll be posting uh, the topic for that show a little bit later. And then next Thursday, it looks like we'll be welcoming back uh, Dr. Um, Bridget McCray. We'll be welcoming her back next uh, Thursday. And so thank you very much for tuning in today. We do appreciate it, and um, we hope you'll tune in as, uh, as frequently as you can. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Oh.